because you can have all the money in the world and be absolutely miserable and be a complete asshole. <laughs> so you're just a toxic poison, or, or just or just an energy vampire. And we're not living in caves in in Tibet, you know, meditating to become the perfect human because we're all busy dealing with our lives. But spending some time to invest in understanding the nature of your mind, the nature of consciousness, how to work with it to, to enhance your lived experience and the lived experience of others is an incredible gift to give yourself. Hello and welcome to the Hot Love Wealth Podcast, Money Rules or Money Rules. Here at Hot Love Wealth, we are all about empowering financial success in our community of listeners. We hope you find today's topic both informative and helpful. Hi, and welcome back to the podcast, Money Rules, Money Rules. I'm your host, Stephen Logan, and as always, with me is Hamish Ferguson. Hamish, thank you for coming. Oh, mate, my diary is pretty full, a couple of days out from Christmas, but, you know, I managed to squeeze it in. <laughs> Today, we have a special guest with us, is Yolanda Beatty. Yolanda, Yolanda, thank you for coming. Pleasure to be here. Great. Uh, Yolanda is the founder of Yo & Co. And after spending 20 years in the corporate world of uh, marketing and public affairs, she's passionate about many things, including family. However, gender, gender equity is very important to her and has advised organisations such as Cricket Australia on what it takes to balance the interests of all players. We'll be talking about that more later, mm. but uh, how's your day been, Yolanda? Yeah, great day. Looking forward to the Christmas break. I think all of us are. <laughs> so, Hamish, you've um, known Yolanda for a little while. How about you start off and, and tell us about your background together? Yes, yeah, so I've known Yolanda for probably what would be about four years, Yolanda. A little bit before COVID. Yeah, it's about that. A little bit before the yeah, event that we all like to forget COVID. about. <laughs> and uh, I guess yeah. um, one of the things that fascinated me about Yolanda when I first met her was just this, um, um, you know, uh, you know, in all honesty, and I hope Yolanda's all, all right with me saying this, but when I first spoke to her, I said, wow, energy um, and just the passion for what she does and also balancing that with, you know, a busy family life and a, a daughter that is very, very important to her and, and trying to just get that balance right. And mm. so um, I just I just knew from the first meeting with Yolanda that I thought, okay, here's a special lady that um, I'd love to get to know a bit better. Um, so, and, and Yolanda, I guess from you, it'd probably be good just to share with us a little bit about, I guess, the background to your own co and why that transition to self-employment for you and and what that transition or that, what that journey's been like so far. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for the opportunity to share my story. So, I started my own business with almost zero forethought. It was a situation where I was in uh, in my in my then current employer where I, in a, in a very quick period of time, like within seconds of a conversation, this current career, this current job isn't working. I need to get myself out of this situation and um, I'm going to start up my own business. So if I'm honest, it's the worst way to think about starting a business. It was a, it was a flight response from a place of fear and, and, and worry uh, and I'm really very lucky that it's it's worked out uh, as well as it has. So I think probably ultimately, you know, I've worked in small business for a lot of my career. I'd have a number of people build and run businesses uh, before. So I, I had I had that kind of entrepreneurial spirit in me, and I knew that I could sell myself and I could sell, you know, products and programs. Um, and I had the self confidence and self belief to do that. 
but I hadn't really thought before I started the business what I really wanted to do and 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 how I was going to bring it to life. It really was a bit of, as I said, a bit of a, a major decision off the back of a, a, a difficult situation. But uh, I haven't looked back, and I can't imagine doing anything else. I often have nightmares that I'm back in corporate life um, working for someone else again, and I always think that's a that's a good indication that I've made the right choice. Uh, and it's been, you know, notwithstanding the COVID hiccup, it's been, you know, a fairly, you know, fairly steady period of, of growth and evolution supported by a great team uh, and some really good mentors and supporters along the way uh, to land to where we are now. And look, I'll come back to, because I probably gave you a bit of a whammy there with about 10 different questions in the first statement. So, um, but if I can just say one thing, I think it's really important to recognise that a lot of people actually become self-employed out of almost that knee-jerk reaction moment. Mm. Um, so, and, and I quite often say to people, you know, when they talk about people that are self-employed, I say, look, if there's one thing that probably categorises us all into one sort of basket is that generally we don't play well with others and we have this drive for independence or control that um, overrides the um, the desire for safety um, so would you agree with that statement yeah and i think it's actually our desire for safety that also drives our need for um control uh and i i think you know when we're looking at how, to, how we want to craft our life, the feeling of autonomy is so important. And I think it's also that, that view of we don't play well with others. This is another, that's what I actually help teams and leaders do is how do we play better together? Uh, and, and so, and, and like a lot of people in, in my field in the area of leadership development or, or, or teams programs, we're doing this work because we have a passionate belief about what's missing and what's lacking in so many organisations with so many leaders or in so many teams and so seeing what hasn't worked for us in the past is often a driver for wanting to make a difference in this area. So let me ask you a question like if you had to sum up what Yo and Co do you know on a day-to-day basis how would you how would you explain that to people? Yeah in a in a nutshell, we help organisations, uh, industries and teams and leaders ignite extraordinary in their people from the inside out. <laughs> so we have diversity at the heart of everything that we do. So some of our work is very um, diversity-centric, so whether that be specific programs for um, women, whether it be attracting women into male-dominated areas or working with male-dominated organisations to um, retain and promote their women uh, but all of it's very much in the prism of what we call the inner game so helping mm. people understand what's happening on the inside how it's always mediating what's happening on the outside and how to find your greatest growth edge by uh, looking at this inner game work mm. so was there an epiphany or a moment in time where you went okay um, i need to take this out of the organisation that I'm in and and do this myself? Or was it something that sort of built up over many months or maybe a year? So the actual decision to start the business, like I said, was made in a second. Um, uh, Literally, you know, somebody told me this is the way this certain situation is going to be and I said, well, let's get me out of here because this isn't working. And I was lucky that I was able to exit the organisation gifted with a couple of important programs and clients that made it um, that much more financially viable for me to start my own business. But in terms of the offer and how we've evolved to the 
to be clear about the value that we offer and the work that we do. That's something that has evolved really steadily over the five years since I launched the business and has come off the back of what areas most inspire me. So what I what I know I get most enlivened by what's my zone of genius so what do i know is my little you know my magic source of 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 passion and and impact uh and uh and what do i see as an opportunity in the market and not necessarily because i'm the only person that does what i do uh but that uh, certainly how i do it can only be done by me mm. uh, and so that when I'm able to bring my own personal passion and and um uh and 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 that that sweet spot where I feel most alive if I'm able to bring that to clients then I know that that's something that draws people to me uh and um is critical for the business's success mm, okay and you find um you know you're obviously talking to lots of different organizations lots of different companies um are there a lot of people that are saying that they, they they want to have more team building they want to understand their staff more they want to create a better culture within their within their organization um is the flow and effect that you know actually saying that and then and then wanting to do that quite high or are you finding often people are saying that that, but then, but then, not really wanting to actually create culture. Or do you find that if someone's making that statement, getting you to come in, they're, they're willing to work with you and actually drive those changes? I think the nature of the way that we structure our programs is that it's pretty hard to start this work yep. and abandon it afterwards because it it, it cuts so deep to. Um, uh, the nature of human motivation and the vulnerability and trust that gets created through the conversations that we facilitate um, make it a, a bit of an unstoppable momentum in, in many organisations and it's one of the reasons why we get a lot of repeat business. Um, so once once you kind of, um, once you start in the game work, uh, most of the time organisations want to do more. But going back to that question though of, of what motivates leaders to start this work in the first place, usually there's something that's, if it's not broken it's a little bit tense and 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 difficult so mm. you know humans are complex and um and interpersonal dynamics are fraught you know trying mm. to get different people to come together to solve problems and develop you know great solutions and collaborate effectively it's really hard you know i find it hard in my own team you mm. know we have tension we have conflict um and it's um it's exhausting and it's time consuming when you have to manage that and you don't have an ability to be able to expertly surface and address the issues and instead what tends to happen is everyone plays nice on the surface but there's never really the deep coordination and collaboration and cohesion and connection that leads to magic in teams and so leaders need most leaders need help in doing that and most leaders benefit from having an external facilitator being able to come in who's impartial uh, and can help them have the conversations that they otherwise have uh, without that external impartial voice. Mm. So if we can go back a step, Yolanda, um, tell us about, um, I guess, you know, you're on the Help My Wealth podcast and it's all about, you know, financial stability, goals, um, trying to get yourself sorted in life. And it'd be good just to go back and talk about Yolanda as a child, all right? So if you don't mind, share us a little bit with about, I guess, what was life as a child for, for you, um, you know, family dynamics, was money talked about and, you know, are there any sort of lasting memories or thoughts that you have that have really shaped you from a, I guess, a finances point of view from your childhood years? 
Yeah, massively. So I was the youngest um, child of three, a much older brother who was 20 years older, so didn't live with the family, same mother, different father, but lived in the same street. So we was very much involved um, in the family. We had a, you know, we had a very close family growing up. Um, my sister was two and a half years older than me, and much of my personality including career choices and, and financial choices were shaped in the in the uh, in, in the shadow but that's so much the shadow actually probably more in the, in the sunlight of my sister's shadow because um, my sister was not particularly was not the child that um, did well at school or um, or was as uh, you know she, she had a lot of mental health issues from from a very young age and so um, my my strength as a personality um, was often a reflection of the fact that my sister found life quite difficult. Um, and I can say that, um, you know, seeing how much that kind of has played out in her adult life as well. So we, we've talked about this quite a lot. Um, uh, uh, you know, the, in many ways her disadvantage strangely became my advantage because I became a bit of the golden child. Um, and what that meant was I had to then keep, proving myself to be the academic one, then to be the career-focused one, to be the one that was good with money. You know, she wasn't good at school. She wasn't good um, uh, career-wise. She was never good with money. She's still very disastrous with money. Um, and so being the golden child in those areas then became this kind of standard that I had to keep maintaining mm. uh, in order to get my own sense of validation, to get my parents' approval, um, to get my own sense of self-approval. So while not particularly healthy in many ways, and there's a whole lot of stuff that I've had to unwind and, and reparent myself on as a result of that, it did give me a lot of strength when it came to my own sense of personal ambition, self-belief and financial security. So much so, I think some of the best examples of that is I've never had a credit card that's ever had any debt on it. Um, uh, and, you know, I've never, other than my mortgage, I've never had debt that hasn't been able to be repaid immediately. And I saw in her those, those she never had those skills and I saw her constantly getting to hardship and, and heartache as a result of that and was determined to, to never fall into that habit. And so um, that was a big part of what shaped me. But also my parents um, were always very open about money, always talked about um, where we were at financially. Um, there were times um, in the late 80s in particular um, before the recession that we had to have um, where the family made um, some bad financial choices uh, and I remember very clearly um, coming or back to going to school one day and my mother sitting around the dining room table um, with mountains of bills in tears not knowing how she was going to pay it and as a as a well, I probably would have been 12, 13-year-old girl, terrified and, and swearing to myself I would never be in that position. I never want to be in that position. I'll do whatever I can to not be in that position. So that feeling of um, uh, always earnings, you know, pushing myself to earn more has been a very innate driver in me from, from a very young age in wanting to avoid that fear that I saw in my mother's eyes when she felt, um, uh, fin you know, real financial distress. Um, and of course, it's it's um, part of that. Then is what motivates me and drives me. But also, part of that also creates a whole lot of your own stress when you see when you have that background of, of financial fear motivating you. It works in many ways and can be stressful in others. Mm. It's funny because as you were sort of talking about the, um, you know, your call it um, 
barriers, not barriers is not the right word, but that whole, I won't have credit card debt, I won't have this, you know, like it, it is a strength um, and you'd almost label it as, as a healthy fear because that's really what you're saying it was, wasn't it? It was almost a fear of the fear, you know, and, and, and how that manifests itself. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, as you would also know, and I remember a conversation that we had, I also like to live a comfortable life. I mean, I don't, it's, I'm definitely not extravagance. You know, I've got a shitty Mitsubishi ASX. Um, I'm grateful to have a, a property, um, but I don't wear, wear designer clothes and I don't like budgeting. <laughs> so, I, and I don't, go, I don't go to mega fine dining, but I don't like having to deny myself, you know, a few finer things. Um, and so, I've, I've always had the belief that don't crimp my lifestyle. I just want to be motivated and set up to earn more so that I don't have to make too many sacrifices. Uh, and I think that it's been, you know, very lucky for, for my generation. I turned 46 this year and I think it's very lucky for my generation is that we've, as long as you've been, you're a successful professional that's continued to move up in your career, that that's, that's generally been the case. This year I think has been a really big shift for, for a lot of people, certainly for me and I, I see it in my cohort where for the first time it feels like we're going backwards, that, you know, I remember my daughter saying to me when I started to talk more about we can't afford that, we can't, you know, we can't keep spending money on that, I've already spent too much money this week. The first, and my daughter saying to me, why, has something happened? Like what's, why are you, why are we having to watch our money so much now? Uh, and me saying, to, trying to explain to her, you know, it's not the I'm earning less it's just that everything's costing more mm -hmm. uh, and so we just need to be that much more conscious and while I find that depressing and frustrating um, and stressful I'm grateful for at least being able to have that conversation with my daughter so she starts realizing the realities of economic conditions and, and what they mean for decisions we have to make as a household. And I think, um, you know, I've had uh, similar conversations with, with my children in the past and I've always said to them, um, it's not so much that we can't afford that, it's that we're choosing not to not to buy that now. Do you know what I mean? It's that whole thing of uh, we can afford whatever we want. We're, we're very lucky in Australia. You know, most people can can afford what they want, but do you want this or do you want this? Do you know? It's a choice to live within your means it's a choice to actually budget. It's a choice to go, I'm not going to go and buy the brand new BMW. I'm going to have, you know, my Mitsubishi. Um, that that ends up being a choice you make so that you can continue the lifestyle that you want to lead rather than this really stressful lifestyle where you've, you know, where you've bought too much. And um, it's funny when you start seeing your kids come back, isn't it, uh, when they've learnt those lessons, you know, and they, and they can actually start saying to you, oh, okay, yes, we're, we're choosing to, you know, not buy that or choosing to do this. So I just need to remind yeah, you, but um, Yolanda's not quite there yet. You know, your, your oldest is 26 and mine is as well. So all, <laughs> all we can do is encourage Yolanda just to keep going. Yeah, yeah. My daughter's 11. She actually she turns 12 on Thursday. Uh, and, and yeah, it's a definitely an ongoing conversation of what's what's a reasonable thing to spend yeah. money on. Do you really need that Starbucks drink for $15? No, I don't think you do. <laughs> I, I think it's interesting, though, that you talk about your life growing up and what you, what it was like when you were 12 or 13 and how you're reflecting on um, where your parents were at that point in time. And now there's almost mm. this um, total 360-degree circle where your daughters are very similar age to where you were then and you're mm. starting to 
have these conversations around what does it mean to tighten the belt a little bit and mm. uh and you know i don't know if you've realized that but you've, you've no just i haven't realized that until until just now i think you're absolutely <laughs> right and I, I another i another dimension on that for my daughter which is different to where i was at and that i'm a single mother um and um and so the difference in when you are a single income household uh trying to create all the opportunities that i had as a child um uh yeah adds a different dimension to pressure and also hopefully role modeling that i'm providing for her Mm. Mm. so can i touch on that because i think it's really important and i mean you know you're obviously well into the parenting journey now and 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 um, from memory, I think you've, you've you've been a single mother for a while now. Is that the case? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So if you were talking to younger people out there, because you know the reality is, what do they say? It's roughly one in two. Um, you know, people will end up you know finding themselves in a situation where they're parenting on their own for at least a season. So I know we haven't prepared for this, but if I said to you, what's two or three things that you keep coming back to to remind yourself about what it means to to do this journey on your own? Um, what would you speak into that? Well, maybe if I kind of say what I'm so grateful for in that supported me, and I know that it's a privilege. Not everybody has the has the type of support structures that I have, and the the, the, the biggest support structure is um, a friendship group who keep me sane mm. um, uh, and have me feel nourished and nurtured. Um, so that I've got the mental fortitude to be able to handle the real difficulties of single parenting. And my daughter's also got an additional need. She's got a mild intellectual disability. She's on the autism spectrum level two, and she has quite significant anxiety. So it's not, um, she's an incredible kid, but she's a tricky one. Um, and I couldn't, I, I couldn't cope with that and running my own business um, without, the incredible support of a friendship circle. So investing in friendship, I think, is massive. The other thing that I would say is investing in you, and again, there's a privilege because I can afford this and I can afford this through my business in particular, but um, that how you deal with adversity is biologically determined, you know, there's an element of genetics to it, mm. but you can absolutely train your capacity to deal with adversity. Mm. It's part of what I train in, in leadership and teams programs that everyone's got different degrees of adversity, but building your internal um, uh, resilience um, is, is absolutely within your control. Um, I also suffer from um, anxiety myself. And so uh, uh, it's not as if it's, I'm just lucky that, you know, I've got all this, you know, mental resilience. I absolutely have had to work on it um, since my 20s when I first came down with quite a significant depressive episode. And so taking control for, of what you can control, investment in friendships, investment in health and well-being um, is an incredibly important part of success no matter what but particularly when you have the added difficulty of single parenting and, and single parenting and additional needs child. Mm. I think it's, I'm so glad you used that word resilience because it's, it's one of the, one of the touch points or one of the, one of the words I, I just love because it doesn't matter, uh, you know, what your background is or genetically where you are disposition in regards to anxiety, or whatever else, but you, you can develop resilience. Resilience is not one of those things that, that just happens. It's, it's, it's almost like it's a taught behavioral thing that you actually go through 
it's that fortitude that when you fall off your bike, you get back on. Uh, now, if you happen to be the you know a person with high anxiety or depression or other things, intellectual disabilities, other areas that make it harder for you, then you require greater resilience to be able to get through life. But in the end, anyone can can develop that resilience. And it's amazing, um, you know, I know people, and I'm sure you do too, that have much harder lives than someone else. But their resilience is such that you wouldn't recognise it. There are other people that have been so blessed in so many ways, yet they seem to be uh, falling apart on a continual basis. Whereas you find someone else who hasn't had that same, um, you know, blessings in life, um, maybe uh, you know, isn't as, as intelligent just naturally or, or, you know, has anxiety, whatever else. Yet because they've developed that resilience, they actually, you know, fare better than, than the other person, don't they? Yeah, and I think also as a matter of experience in life, and that's really what it comes down to, right? Mm. Once you've got your basics um, uh, covered, and you've got you know you're a certain income threshold where you've got to you're not you're not worrying about paying the bills. Once you've got those basics covered, and I, again, I really appreciate there are so many people in this country right now who don't feel that um, for the first time in their lives mm. as well. Once you've got those basic covers, as a, as a matter of experience, all you've got to offer yourself in the world is your mind. Mm. And so how you work with your mind um, and, and what you do to understand the nature of the mind, the nature of consciousness, the nature of human experience, the nature of emotions, of thoughts, you know, doing the work to understand that is the greatest gift you can give yourself and everybody in your life. It's the best investment you can make because you can have all the money in the world and be absolutely miserable and be a complete asshole. Mm -hmm. So you've the toxic poison or, or just or just an energy vampire, you know, whatever yeah. whatever it is, the various versions of <laughs> toxic, you know, psychopath to just just kind of energy vampire who doesn't really give much to them, you know, the yes. people around them and all the varying degrees. And of course we can all be different versions of that as well. No one's gonna we're not, you know, we're not living in caves in, in Tibet you know, meditating to become the perfect human because we're all busy dealing with our lives. But spending some time to invest in understanding the nature of your mind, the nature of consciousness, how to work with it to, to enhance your lived experience and the lived experience of others is an incredible gift to give yourself. Yeah. It's one of the things when we're doing the Help Wealth course, we're, we're talking about what are your sort of the basics you need um, to, to understand finances, to understand, to give you a good foundation to be able to step off uh, into life. And we actually ended up coming up with this, you know, behavioural psychology um, subject. It's actually one of my favourite subjects in, in the course that we do. And that goes through a lot of the things that, that you've just mentioned and, and it's funny because when I originally when we originally started the help my wealth idea I think I, I we focused more on the on the finances on the budgeting on the cash flow on but in the end when when you actually look through the course I think it's that that, that discovery of yourself and going through that behavioral psychology that actually really gives you that foundation to be able to step off from would you agree Hamish mm, but I'm I'm still I'm back at energy vamp, um, energy vampire. <laughs> I just think that's a great phrase to. Uh, <laughs> we've got to redo all those videos now and build in the phrase energy vampire. Um, so <laughs> you're sitting here and looking at all the people you know and going, "Yep, yep, that one's energy vampire." Well, it's interesting though because we talked about resilience, and I guess the thing that I guess I'm trying to connect the dots here because to me, you know, when Yolanda talked about community as well, mm. right? So you know, you can only be resilient for so long on your own. Right. Mm -hmm. so, 
Um, I don't think you can be resilient by on your own at all. Humans are tribal creatures. We mm. we pair bond for life from a mateship, an intimate mateship point of view, and we're tribal creatures when it comes to um, family and friends. I, I don't think anybody can survive alone. Mm. And if you look at the epidemic of loneliness that mm. is existing across the Western world, it is the biggest issue and the biggest health issue that the Western world faces. Mm. Um, and we look at it from um, not only just a health issue, but then a social issue, a crime issue. One of the biggest risks that the Western world faces is the rise of lonely men mm. um, and how how many there are um, and what that does for crime rates, for depression rates, for suicide rates, um, for the dip- for fertility, the difficulty of women being mm. able to partner with good men who, who have the social skills and the friendship networks to be able to, um, you know, to be, you know, good partners and good support, you know, good support. So, um, yeah, I think it's a it's an incredibly important, um, incredibly important issue. Mm. Yeah, and no, I think um, um, one of the shows I've been enjoying lately, I think I've just finished it, it's called The Blue Zone, and they talk, it seems that in all of the areas where people reach 100 at a greater rate, that community is one of those bedrock, um, I, I guess call it philosophies or ingredients to, to, you know, what they're saying is a successful life. Yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. So, so Yolanda, if I can come back to, I guess, um, you know, you, Let's label you as a leadership coach, right? So, um, you know, does that phrase resonate with you? Um, if not, how would you describe yourself, right, in, in, from a work capacity point of view? Uh, yeah, so I, I, it depends on the audience. Um, so for somebody who's um, uh, is buying leadership um, programs, then yes, it's definitely a leadership coach for somebody who really wants to wants to be true though, and is really ready for the truth. And what is what I am as a consciousness coach, and also the people that really want to do that work are really ready and willing to lead into that work. Because I consider myself a consciousness coach, and and very much a student um, uh, in that myself. Mm. So can you go a little bit further into that sort of in terms of so what does a consciousness coach involve? Like what are you trying to unpack with the individual yeah so what we're trying to unpack when we're doing consciousness work is to understand um the nature of thoughts the nature of motivations thoughts feelings and beliefs and how they shape what we do moment to moment and how they shape our lived experience so it, it's effectively working with uh, understanding that the nature of the mind um and um and how to work with it more skillfully so that you have more of what you want in life as a matter of experience and give more back in life to others to enhance their experience so is that another way forgive me if i'm making light of this but is that another way of looking at the old looney tunes cartoon and looking at the i think the guy that might have been on my right shoulder that was trying to speak (laughs) nice things into my my ear rather than why don't i kind of dig into that a little bit more with just a couple of kind of really powerful concepts and i i share these concepts um and i've been taught these concepts by a a group called the Conscious Leadership Group. So they they have a uh, they, they anchor everything that they do, and this anchors everything that I do on this concept of above the line and below the line. When you're above the line, you're in a state of high trust. You're feeling open and curious, committed to learning. You're feeling connected to the people you're with, and are uh, are feeling very present to um, your experience and the people around you. When you're below the line, you're feeling threatened, you're committed to being right. It's more about winning than it is about learning. It's more about um, proving yourself better than or sometimes worse than, less than other people. It's very much about power 
over or power under rather than sharing power with uh, and is, is driven by our, our programming over millennia, which is about um, being uh, having to self-protect and self-preserve self in order to avoid risk and avoid, um, avoid threats. And so in that place of below the line, there's a sense of scarcity, scarcity of time, money, energy, um, uh, and we focus on what's not working. Um, we focus on problems. We focus on threats and fears as opposed to possibilities. Now, the truth is that because this is a survival mechanism that's evolved over millennia, we're going to be below the line all the time. Mm -hmm. And so the game is not actually about being above the line. The game is about seeing when you're below the line, understanding when you are and what are your choices to do things differently and how you can shift to above the line or at least not be as, as go as deep below the line as you might otherwise mm -hmm. would if you let the negative programming that the, that the, the brain is wired to do run amok mm. and run uncontrolled to descend you into um, a, a below-the-line position that becomes much harder to bounce back from. So that's that's really in its simplest forms what, a, what, what consciousness work or mindset work, in other ways described as a mindset coach, um, is about really connecting with that human truth and working with it in a skillful way so that you can have a life you love, build a fulfilling and flourishing career, um, bring your best self to more moments with the people that mean the most to you. And I think, like, I know when I've worked with um, different groups in the past, one of the things I've talked about is this idea that your skill doesn't change. You know, um, there's this really weird thing where, you know, one day, for instance, you know, your boss comes in and tells you, you know, you're the best salesperson we have, I'm giving you a bonus. You know what I mean? Your skills that day as a salesperson, let's say, as an example, is, is you know, you're, you're through the roof, you're hitting all your targets, everything's going really well. Compared to, say, the next day the boss comes back and says, sorry, Yolanda, it wasn't you, it was the other Yolanda from you know from the other department um she's the one that's been doing well i actually had a relook at your work and you've been doing poorly you know and then that day your your sales are down everything's down you can't get on with your work but your skill hasn't changed from one day to the other has it? it's your mindset that has changed it's that ability to go in your terms am i above the line or am i below the line you know because i know myself when you're in that fear state um you spend a lot of energy trying to work out how to get out of it, don't you? You spend a lot of energy trying to work out how to approach your boss properly if you're, if you're worried about him or concerned about how she or he is going to react to you. Um, that's a lot of time and energy you're spending to, to make sure that everything's right, uh, whereas you could be getting on with your day and doing whatever you really should be doing. Yeah, yeah. So we call that status threat. Um, so some great work from the Neural Leadership Institute brings summarizes our five main threat responses using an acronym called SCARF. So it talks about status, certainty, autonomy, relatedness, and fairness. And so that status threat of, of what is my perceived value compared to others is a massive impact on your cognitive capacity, so how well you think. So how good you are at expressing mm. your skills and talents. And when you feel like you're less than other people, you literally become dumber. Your, your cognitive capacity declines just through the experience of feeling less than. And so as, as leaders and parents, um, as partners, um, being mindful of, of showing up in a way that, that, that supports others to feel good, mm. it gets more out of them. 
uh, and creating a team environment um, and a family environment mm. where people feel that they're valued um, for the strengths that they bring, while also challenged to work on their development areas, makes smarter teams. Mm. So here's a question moving a little bit further, you know, into, into what you do. Um, when people say to you, you're a consciousness coach, or you're a life coach or whatever else, what, what are some of the, the common myths that, that um, people come to you with that they just have these assumptions that you're going to be that just isn't the case at all? Yeah, they sometimes they think it's going to be very kind of goal-oriented. Mm. And so tell me the five goals that I, you know, help me work out my five goals and develop a plan to get there. And some coaches will do that, right? So that's that's definitely what what, what some coaches in leadership development um, people will do, and that's absolutely fine. And obviously goal-setting and at least getting a sense of what do you most want in any situation is, mm. a, is definitely part of our conversation. But probably the most common things that I hear is, whoa, I wasn't expecting to have that conversation or that feels very personal or, gee, this is like a psychology session, um, uh, which not everybody is interested in doing, of course. You know, some people prefer to just keep it uh, much more at a, you know, train my behavioral repertoire rather than dealing with the actual stuff that's stopping me from performing um, or living the life that I want. And so I always make, I, I go to great pains to make the point that um, when you're doing this work with me, expect to be challenged and confronted um, because that's where your greatest growth edge lies. It gets to a certain point in your career where there's no more there's no more behavioural repertoires to learn, there's no more technical skills to do. You've actually got to get really clear about how do you get in your own way and in the way of others so that you can start to s slowly shift that over time by paying attention to to the mind and, and what, you, what you think and what you do when you get in your own way and using that power of attention to start shifting at the edges to slowly drive change. Do you, do you find that you've, you've had, um, you know, uh, people have often said to you at the end of your course or the end of the time together, you know, with you, they've gone, wow, this is not what I thought it was going to be? Yeah, often actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> most of the time, that's exactly it's probably one of the most common things that I hear. Wasn't expecting that. Um, uh, and and then it's things like, wow, if you if you wanted to, probably one of my favourite quotes from a client this year actually was somebody in a team session where they said, if this program was about increasing trust in the team, like you've totally nailed it. Mm -hmm. And that's that's exactly what um, probably if there's one thing that I that summarizes what I do is, is trust work. Mm. Um, and it's not just about trusting others, but it starts with trusting yourself. And so self-acceptance, self-compassion um, is a massive part of this work. Um, and it's hard and it can be really painful. Sometimes I kind of wish, you know, sometimes I think maybe it would be better if I just brushed it all under the carpet and, didn't look at all of these fears and shadows and all of these ways that I can be, you know, selfish and and judgmental and and um, controlling and you know all of these flaws that I have, all of these bugs in my internal operating system. Sometimes I think, oh, what would it be? It's better if I lived this blind life. <laughs> and I know that that is a life half lived. I know that that's not a life where you're living in your full magnificence, where you're feeling deeply connected with the people around you, where you feel like you can, that you've got the tools to be able to handle life's hardships that are going to come no matter what. Mm. Uh, uh, but I get why some people find that just too confronting to deal with. I mean, it's interesting, though. I mean, another way to summarise this, Yolanda, 
may be that the fake it till you make it strategy only works for so long. That, that ultimately, if you don't start getting real and, and, and unpacking, let's call it the truth, that you, your own growth can only stall. How would you oh, respond definitely. to that? I would 100%. And not everybody wants to grow. Mm. Mm. So I'm really clear about that, and that's absolutely fine. But uh, that is 100% true. You cannot grow as a human, as a leader, as a parent, as a partner in a partnership unless you do this work. Mm. Mm. That is, that is, you know, all of the neuroscience, all of the leadership development theory, all of the adult development theory will tell you it's this inner work that will drive your growth in the long term. Sorry, am I right in saying as well that your your learning or your journey with people is is almost a, 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 another way of looking at, is it Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Is it, mm-hmm. is it that sense of moving through the different sort of levels yeah. of, of call it yeah. growth? Or, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is what the concept of self-actualization is all about, right? When you actually, or a better way to put it is self-transcendence. So this idea of above the line, below the line, when we're below the line, we've got our ego running the show, right? We've got our sense of it's got to be about me, self-preservation, self-protection, making myself better than or less than. It's all about ego. Um, It's driving, um, it's driving your engagement with the moment or the person self-transcendence also ego and self being the same thing is to recognize that the self is just a constructed concept um, that impinges and limits our growth and connection and of course also supports our skills and and our expertise so self-transcendence is to lose yourself lose the concept of self lose this sense of of I have to be better than, um, lose the sense of um, uh, I need to protect myself or I need to comply or I need to control. That's what those moments of self-transcendence are about. Um, and, you know, it's a, it's a journey for all of us mm. without a doubt. Sorry, Steve, I was going to interrupt you before. Did you have your question still? Or? No, I was just going to say that um, I think that the truth thing is the important thing, you know, that you mentioned, you know, um, if someone doesn't want to change or they don't want to look at themselves, then then that's where they're just unable to change, aren't they? You know, um, and, and so often people don't really want to look at themselves. They want to find out why things aren't working from other people's point of view, uh, you know, not why aren't things working from, from my point of view. And one of the things I, I often talk to, to my clients about and even, even to my children about is to say to them, um, you know, if Bob or Sarah have done the wrong thing by you and you feel quite justified to be frustrated or to be fearful or whatever it is going on for you, that's one thing. But actually stop looking at their story and actually start looking at your own story and actually think about what what could have I done to have changed this situation? What could have I done to have made this better, regardless of the right or wrong of it? If you can actually find out that inner truth for yourself, it can really propel you along you know, quite a bit further, can't it? Absolutely, and it's the it's the fundamental starting point for mindset and consciousness work, which is to say, how do I take 100% responsibility for everything that I'm experiencing in this moment? That you can't make me feel sad. You do things and then I make myself sad mm. from the stories that I make up about the things that you're doing. Yes. Right? Other than, you know, obviously there are situations where there are real victims, mm. um, victims of violence, mm. um, 
uh, victims of psychological abuse. You know, there are all sorts of ways that we can we can be a real victim. However, most of the time, in most of our experience, our victim psychology is a self-created view of feeling at the effect of others mm. so one of the key things that we do when we do this type of mindset and consciousness work is we look at how we create dramas and in all dramas there's either a victim villain or a hero and often we're playing all three roles so the victim is feeling at the effect of yeah we're feeling at the effect of the villain is blaming the themselves or others and the hero comes in to swoop with temporary relief often with some kind of quick fix like coming and doing it for you trying to make some everybody feel better it'll be okay um rather than actually sitting with pain and discomfort um that's essential for learning and growth so understanding all these very human ways that we self-sabotage and sabotage others um starts with taking responsibility and ending all blame Mm, absolutely so you're right if we move along a little bit, because I'm really curious to hear a little bit more about um, Yolanda's journey around, I guess, gender equality, the work mm. she's done with Cricket Australia. I've been quite fascinated with being, what's been going on in the world of soccer, I believe, as well over the last yeah. six months and some of the um, so the, the big improvements that they've made there. So tell us how you fell into this part of the work, you know, and, and where it's taken you and some of the highs and lows. Yeah, so I started working in gender equality and pay equity when I was um, working for a large consulting firm and that one of their clients was the Australian Cricketers Association and so that's the peak body, uh, effectively the union body that represents, um, that organises and represents professional players. So it was 2016, they were going into a pay negotiation, um, just captured in a memorandum of understanding, and they wanted to bring the men and women into the same pay deal um, uh, and the same pay bucket, but didn't know how to approach the problem. Knowing that they're two very different pay mm. uh, to, to, to very different commercial outcomes, right? Mm. So back in 2016, you know, the if you were a domestic player, you were getting paid like peanuts. You were certainly working part time, if not full time. Um, uh, the Aussie team, the Australian team, was was still was starting to get paid um, uh, at a way that they could actually become fully professional. Um, but still, many were still working part time as well. And so, cricket, uh, the Australian Cricketers Association really wanted to help to navigate these two different commercial um, realities. Given to be a professional, to be the best cricketer you can be is exactly the same if you're a woman as if you're a man. So there was this fundamental in- inequity in the system um, at all at all levels um, uh, that needed to be addressed. So I came in and brought a disciplined approach to thinking through how you value work. Um, and how you do that, recognising that they have two different commercial values, so the two different products, the two different jobs, if you like, but there is a baseline of what's required. And how do you how do you put in place a mechanism where you recognise that the men's game is more valuable than the women's game because there's been, you know, over 100 years of underinvestment in that women's game. Mm. And so that gave us a framework, a model, if you like, um, and a set of principles to be able to guide the decision-making once um, ACA um, started to work with Cricket Australia to pay the bills, um, the administrator and the manager um, uh, through the process, then CA brought me in to help them understand the thinking. They created a basis upon which all of the pay decisions have been made since, and I've had the privilege of being able to work with them in three different iterations of those pay reviews. That's now had 
most cricketers, um, domestic and um, national, being able to be full-time players, um, and certainly the international players, particularly now with the with the, with the global dynamics of the Women's Indian Premier League, um, just smashing those pay conversations to a whole new level um, in the deal that was struck this year. Uh, I've also had the privilege of doing that work and, and, and informing the discussions with the AFL, with New Zealand rugby, New Zealand foot, professional football, Australian professional footballs and um, soccer. Um that all of them? I think that's all of them. Yeah. Um, so it's been, and I always say it's also quite funny because I don't, I'm not particularly interested in sport. I don't watch sport. <laughs> I don't play team sport. Um, but I find the dynamic, I find complex problems like that fascinating, bringing a principle of equity that deals with the commercial realities is not just ideologically driven, mm-hmm. but also creates incentives in the system to continue to invest in the women's game so that it can be as commercially viable as the men's game and investing in the system so that the dominant archetype being the men are also incentivized to lift up and support the growth um, in the women's game so that the whole pie continues to grow for both players um, uh, in a spirit of, of, you know, ongoing growth and abundance um, that comes when you bring that, that mindset to, to the negotiations. So yeah, it's been, it's been fascinating understanding the, the intricacies of, of uh, professional sport and, um, and just the dynamics that, that go into those decisions. And look, from the outside, I, I would have to, you know, ask the female cricket um, in the last five years or even longer than that has has jumped over and over and over again from, from the point of view of viewers, from the point of view of seeing it on TV, from the point of view of advertising. I mean, they must look back at that now and go, our pie is bigger. You know what I mean? Like, like that they're getting, um, you know, a huge return for actually recognising where the inequality was and then actually trying to fix that. Um, yeah. So have you seen that as, as quite a, um, a great success story for yourself as well as yeah. for Australia? Yeah, so it's, it's, it's a question of what happens when you invest. <laughs> mm. Great things happen. And let's be real, the Boxing Day test, the men's Boxing Day test is what makes cricket. Right. So it's still the men's game is still substantially more commercially yes. lucrative mm-hmm. than the women's game. And the big piece that needs to change there is how the broadcasters value the game. Mm. So we've still got in all the in all games in all formats, we've still got this mismatch between what what, what the eyeballs are doing and how that's translating into broadcast deal value as determined through um, the broadcasters when they're negotiating and what what, what they value and, and how they set how they set value based on eyeballs which eyeballs at what time when that's actually broadcast the quality of the broadcast so it's the intricacies of the commercial details are well beyond what I ever got involved in um, uh, and there is a long way to go to really generate the commercial potential and realize the commercial potential of women's cricket do you think that the response you know, in recent times to the Matildas doing so well, you know, the World Cup, that that will actually change things or, or not? Yes. Yeah, I think it already has changed things. Mm. Um, and what it does is it shows you, it, it kind of is a bit of a what's possible, right? What's mm. possible when a country gets behind a, a, a women's game. Um, and the dimension, and the dynamics are a little bit different, right? A World Cup, uh, it's got such a concentrated um, amount of energy that mm. it's, we can get easily buoyed by that. Whereas, say, for example, a full AFL season, women's season, um, while still 
significantly shorter than the men's season, um, still says 10 games um, and increasing to sustain interest in um, in a sport over over 10 games over a longer season compared to a really concentrated global tournament uh, and championship mm. like the World Cup is, is, is very different. But it goes a lot to the psyche, right? You know, it goes a lot to the psyche and the, and the, that, that can only be a good thing. It's now up for the administrators to continue to build on that energy and enthusiasm for women's sport in a way that recognises there is a different product but hopefully doesn't have it just become a, a, a second-rate product that's about just family, the family sport, but we can continue to invest in and admire these women for the incredible athletes that they are just like we do for men's sport. But that's going to take continued investment, mm. you know, particularly when you look at the need to, to, to up the ante and the, the quality of the game um, uh, that comes with investment. It is interesting, though, in the sense that if you said to me, Hamish, name a sport that's been around for a while where women have had a much closer equality, the only sport I can think of is tennis. Mm. Yes, and there's a difference. It's, it's because it's not a team sport. So tennis has had, um, certainly Tennis Australia has played equal um, prize money for a long time. Uh, I don't know the specifics. I haven't worked with Tennis Australia, but it's been equal prize money for a long time for the Australian Open. Um, and the difference is, is that you've got one-on-one, right, mm-hmm. compared to it's a much bigger pool, so it's easy to, to equalise when you compare to when you've got dozens and dozens of players that have to be remunerated in, say, AFL or cricket. Um, and that the hierarchy is you're moving from a, a domestic um, league into a, um, certainly when it comes to cricket, into a global league and all the various different tiers and hierarchies that have to be funded in that measure. Uh, so it, it is a, it's a very different, it's a very different dynamic from that perspective. Um, and same with golf. So golf has got a lot mm. more equity coming through as well because it's a it's a it's an individual sport compared to a team sport. Um, so yeah, they both yeah. also played together. So if you think about most team sports, you know it's it, it hasn't been that common that the men are playing at the same time as the women. The women might be a month later or two months earlier or whatever it happens to okay. be. Whereas I think golf and tennis, mm. each competition, both genders play at the same time. Um, so, you know, and we don't need to get into the specifics of that, but it is interesting. I, I guess if I can take one step back, though, I'm still trying to get my head around, okay, so before you started talking to Cricket Australia, would you have called yourself a specialist in this area or, like, how did that conversation yeah, eventually? Sure. Yeah, so I was a specialist in pay equity. So my, my, my expertise in gender equality started when I ran the public affairs team of the Workplace Gender Equality Agency from 2012 to 2016. So that role is a federal government agency that regulates employers on their gender equality performance and they do that through basically collecting data yeah. and reporting, so reporting um, statutory authority. And um, so I was running the big campaigns that was driving the national conversation um, in particularly in areas of pay equity and workplace flexibility, gender strategy. Um, and so um, that role got, gave me the expertise and the profile to then um, join a global consulting firm called MRSA, um, where I ran their diversity and inclusion consulting practice. And MRSA was an expert in remuneration. So um, some of the best work that I did in the three years there was working with incredible analysts to do these really complex pay equity audits where we weren't just 
I mean, hey, uh, what we did with sport became much more principled and um, and, and model a way to model the thinking, but very imprecise. But then when we were doing it in corporates, we were analysing data for thousands of employees globally, you know, three historical remuneration trends, building very sophisticated um, uh, regression models to be able to pinpoint um, uh, pay inequities down to an incumbent level, down to a dollar level based on all the legitimate drivers of pay, like job level, performance, um, starting salary, location, or just to see where there was genuine... um, of an unconscious discrimination and that unconscious discrimination usually started or always started at the beginning so the pay gap starts on commencement because women ask for less and get get less men ask for more and get more it then gets perpetuated through pay review cycles where we can see again that that bias playing out despite the fact that women often getting uh, on average higher pay uh, high performance reviews and so by understanding what do you do when you've got a whole lot of data to be really precise um we were able to take the principles of that um, uh, very um, uh, sophisticated statistical modelling and bring it into a professional sports environment um, with more of a principled approach. Mm. So my question for you as well is, look, you know, through the 80s and particularly the 90s when pay equity and, and, you know, um, gender equality and so forth were really being pushed through, there was that really strong belief that, um, you know, no, look, if, if, a, if a woman uh, is worth the wage, she'll be paid the wage. Do you know, we're going to reward people based on their effort, not based on their gender. We don't do that. That's sort of evolved now where people, I think, are starting to understand why there has been um, inequality in pay and inequality in gender equity, uh, especially in corporate. Um, do you see that has changed a lot or do you still find that, that that some corporations are saying, no, the reason why 90% of our you know, managers are men is because they're, they're better or they're doing this or they're doing that? Or are people really in the corporate world more and more starting to see that there has been a problem in the past that they have, that they have perpetuated, that they need to actually, um, you know, make physical changes to to move forward i think uh it's obviously going to be different in different places uh i think though that the conversation that is obviously you know in the 10 years that i've been working in this area it's it's evolved massively Mm. so that most sophisticated most large-ish sophisticated organizations because they're publicly listed um or they've got a high public profile um they've seen the writing on the wall and they realize they need to take this issue seriously and when you take the issue seriously and you really investigate the difference in the lived experience of men and women um at work that it's they don't they don't start from the same place mm. that the there are so many stereotypes and biases that that favor whatever the dominant archetype is in the system right so you can have a highly feminized system um so i've done a lot of work in the pharmaceutical industry as well where there are um, you know, majority women in most management positions in the mm. most senior levels, and they're just simply, apart from there's a, there was a little bit of a gender pay gap on commencement, on pay commencement because of that negotiation factor, there just simply isn't a pay gap when you've got, mm. you know, a female-dominated workforce. Um, and so the barriers just, just don't exist. So... Um, uh, what, so, what, so what you see, I think, most employers is recognising that fairness and equity matters to be able to get the best out of your people and to be able to attract the best talent and in an, in a, an environment where you know you're in a knowledge economy being able to attract and retain and motivate and get discretionary effort out of your people is good for business mm. and equity 
and not just when it comes to gender equity, but all equity, that feeling of am I being treated fairly is fundamental to people's um, sense of motivation, which then drives discretionary effort. Uh, and so, you know, it, it just becomes a really basic tenant of leadership that most organisations are, are recognising is good for them. Can I ask a cheeky question? So, um, so Yolanda, you're in the pharmaceutical industry and everybody in the workforce is female except for the boss, right? The number one guy, CEO, whatever you want to call him, right? But you touched on before that females tend to ask for pay rises less. Yeah. Right? So what you're telling me is if, if I had a whole female workforce versus so we're talking Pfizer versus what's the other big one um I'm, you know you've forgotten all this stuff so Smith and Klein Smith and Klein whatever and they've all got male all right so you're saying that you could almost tank the company with the male workforce because they're all going to ask for too many pay rises, right? So whereas the females, they're probably a little bit more likely just to be happy, right? And and so won't ask for the pay rises. And, and so Pfizer, in that case, what would be a more profitable firm, right? So, and I think that's the, the thing I find really interesting is because I'm reflecting at the moment, I'm going to leave an Easter egg in this show to see if my staff actually listen to this because <laughs> I, I can attest to the fact that the females tend to just ask less. Yeah. Yeah, they speak up less, they ask for less, they don't push their promotion, they expect that if they just do good work, it'll be noticed. And good organisations work it because most women then wake up one day and go, what the fuck have I been doing? Mm. Like, mm. <laughs> the blokes are taking over me, I'm getting paid less, I'm working my butt off yeah. and, I'm running, and I'm running the household at a disproportionate level. What am I doing? And so... Most, not most organisations, some organisations, the good organisations recognise that equity is about supporting people to start from the same level playing field. And that, and that because of all of these socially conditioned mm. factors, women aren't starting from the same playing, level playing field when it comes to the professional environment. Um, and so the good leaders go, we're going to offer her what she's worth, not what she asks. We're going to support her to speak her to speak up and and get promoted through coaching. You know, so I do an advocacy, a sponsorship and advocacy program, which is about addressing some of these issues, for example. And so they they recognise that if they want to get more women into those more senior roles, that inequity means that we have to do more to support them. But that it's not just a gender issue, and this is what I'm increasingly talking to organisations about. When you scratch beneath the surface, yeah, there are some gender issues, but it's way more human potential issue that an introverted male from a, a, a diverse cultural background is going to be more disadvantaged than an extroverted white woman mm. if that if, if white woman if extroverted um white is the dominant archetype um so if we actually make it more about what it takes to, as humans to do great work, to bring our best self to work, to bring out the best in others, that's where the, that's where I got to the work of consciousness and the work of mindset is that they're the layers that are so much more relevant to bringing out the best in your people so that they can really do their best work while they're working with you. Um, and so, um, you know, it, it's it's so much more than identity. It's, it's, it's all of the layers of our humanity. And when we invite teams and leaders to have that conversation not only do they get insights that 
unlock extraordinary performance, but they develop the trust and professional intimacy that makes work so much more fun. Mm. Mm. I'm really enjoying this, but I think we're going to have to keep moving things along, otherwise we'll be here all night. So, um, so Yolanda, um, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of starting a business, all right? So from your lessons, you know, what are the top sort of three, four or five things that you would want to impart on me to, um, to be thinking about before I jump in? Okay, cool. Well, why don't I make it a little bit more specific to I'm looking at starting a professional services business where I'm looking to sell my ideas, right? Because, you know, that's the, that's the main expertise that I can focus on. So if you're somebody who feels like that you've got something to offer based on what you, you want to train people, you want to develop people, you want to offer some kind of service, some kind of knowledge economy service, some kind of professional service, my recommendation to you is you need to love the hustle. Mm-hmm. You need to be comfortable selling yourself. You need to know your worth and value. And you need to be comfortable getting uncomfortable with that because mm. it's always going to feel like I, I consider myself to have a high level of self-confidence and self-worth. And I have imposter syndrome all the time. All the time I look around and think that I am a minnow compared to the intellectual giants that inspire me, um, that I feel that I'm you know, who, these people that trust me with their, with their people and with their leadership, I'm like, what do I know, you know? And, of course, I know a lot, right? But it's never enough. It's never as much as I want to know. And so being able to step outside your comfort zone and push yourself and sell yourself beyond what you think you're capable for, capable of while, while catching up and constantly developing and growing yourself is absolutely fundamental. So you've got to love the hustle. Yeah. Um you need to be disciplined, hugely self-disciplined, um, and that comes in a sense of self-worth um, or, or a chronic fear that's driving you, one or the other. Um, I'm lucky that I've got a good sense of self-worth that I, that, I can, that supports my discipline. It makes a massive difference when you love what you do, when you can feel a genuine passion. It means the work actually doesn't feel like work. You know, I often fantasise about... Um, you know, winning a lotto um, so that the pressure of, of the pipeline um, and, the, and the revenue that I need to raise to pay the salaries, I would love to not have that pressure and I wouldn't do anything differently. Like I'd still be working this hard, I'd still be doing this work um, uh, and, you know, that's incredibly um, motivating because I love what I do. So, yeah, if I was summing it up, love what you do, um, love the hustle, believe in yourself, and and self-discipline is absolutely key. If you don't have that, then you might do better working for someone else. Mm. Can, can I add one to that? Because if I – and we don't spend a lot of um, time talking, but within that self-discipline, I'm, I'm guessing that um, delegation skills and staying in your lane has been something that you um, uh, try to do well. Would you agree with that statement? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Certainly delegation skills and trying to bring a team together um, uh, is um, is really, is, is absolutely vital. You can't, well, depending on the model you've got, actually, um, but certainly the model that I've got in my business is that I have to do things through and with people um, and that I have to be constantly investing in my ability to do that and my team's ability to work together Um uh, and we've had hurdles, you know. We're having a bit of a hurdle at the moment, if I'm honest. Um, uh, and, you know, I can't let that stuff go. I have to lean into those challenges and those frictions so that I can have the sum of the whole of the, my team generating more than their individual parts. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a constant 
yeah, okay. journey, as they say. And with Help My Wealth, I guess one of the things that we sort of uh, try to impart onto people is just the importance of having a team around you or a mentor or a coach at times. So so what's been your, I guess, journey with that over the last five years or, or longer? Yeah, coach is massive. You know, if I look at, you know, just the work that we've done together, Hamish, um, from a financial perspective, um, and for me, because there's not there's not heaps of money to invest or manage at the moment. It's really about maximizing my contribution to super and getting my insurance sorted. Um, uh, was a big thing. And so just knowing that I had that stuff sorted and working with an expert to do that, um, is a kind of baseline starting point. Um, surrounding yourself with people who, um, you enjoy working with, um, uh, and that you can trust implicitly, um, is, is obviously incredibly important. Mm. I have my own coaches, um, uh, I have my own consciousness coach and I'm starting to work with another team coach um, next year. Uh, so none of this stuff should be done. Never should you expect that you've got all the answers, right? Mm-hmm. Probably the biggest keys to my success from um, from high school through to now is being able to see what I don't do well or want to do better, finding someone who does it better than me mm-hmm. and then asking, uh, asking them, how do they do it? Or getting them to do it for me mm-hmm. even better. Mm. Um, so seeing what you're not good at and therefore what you need help in getting somebody else to do is one of my greatest strengths. Mm. 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 Well, we always ask people when they come on our show that um, if you could go back and you could tell your 18-year-old self some advice, what would it be? Oh, <laughs> so many. I'm just trying to think of what the what the best one would be. Um, it would be trust yourself. You're going to be okay if you end up alone. Mm. I would have made very different. I would have made very different choices had I not been so afraid of being alone. Mm. Mm. It's funny. We ask that question to a lot of people, and I would say that um, a good percentage of them often say, "Trust yourself." Yeah. Trust yourself often becomes one of the things that they that they often point out. So, okay, another question we'd like to ask everyone is, if you were going to write a book, what would the book be about and what would the title be? I've got a couple of books in the mental um, clog. So one of them is... Um, in the file. One of them is, yeah, one of them is called Trust Work. So yes. why, why trust work is key to teamwork. Um, another one is Ego Threats, um, how... Um, how you self-sabotage um, um, through ego. Uh, another one would just be the inner game, so helping you master your inner game. Mm. Um, and then I also would love to do one. I'm not single anymore. I've been in a relationship for a couple of years, um, but I prolifically dated um, after my ex-husband and I um, separated. And I would have loved to have written a book then about dating you know, how to survive the dating world in Sydney. Well, you have at least four good books there. Mm-hmm. You need yeah, to, you need no, to get cracking. no time to write them. You need to get cracking <laughs> on which one, which one are you going to focus on. And I think yeah, the good exactly. news is out of, I think, our 16 or 17 episodes so far, you've got no competition. So nobody has picked any of those titles so far. Yeah, look, I like that you're the one particular. <laughs> I think that's really good. Well, look, Yolanda, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you having along um, as our special guest, and um, we've really appreciated everything that you've shared with us today. Mm. 
Yeah, Thank I think you so it, much for the opportunity. It's, almost, it's been a blast. No, it's been great. And I, I'd almost say there's another episode at some point down the track. So, um, yeah, thanks, Yolanda. It's Anytime. been great. Especially if you write one of those Anytime. books. Mm. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> You'll be the first one getting the copy. Yeah. <laughs> great. Uh-huh. Well, look, Hello Wealth is all about empowering your financial success in a balanced and safe way. And today we've done that by talking to Yolanda B. I hope that you've enjoyed it. And I hope that it's actually helped you to have insight into yourself uh, and insight into your own workplace and, and how you deal with trust and deal with workplace relations. Uh, Yolanda, thank you for joining us and we'll see you all again next time. Thank you and bye for now. Bye. The information discussed by the Hot Rod Wolf and the Money Rules Money Rules podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only and is generally nature and it is not advice. It is not intended as a substitute for professional, finance, legal or tax advice. It is aimed to provide a general understanding of each topic and should not be relied upon to make an investment or financial decision. It is strongly suggested that you seek professional advice regarding your own individual circumstances before making a financial decision. Help my wealth and the hosts of the Money Rules and Money Rules podcast are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast. In the spirit of reconciliation, Help My Wealth and the Money Rules or Money Rules podcast acknowledge traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to past, present and emerging elders. We extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today.